So, uh, first of all, I'd like to thank Charles for his very warm welcome. It's lovely to be back here with, with you. And um, I was here last night as well, actually. Um, at 3.56 on July the 20th in 1969, Neil Armstrong stepped off the ladder from the Eagle and onto the moon surface. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind, he said. And he became the first man to walk on the moon. Thousands of people gathered in Trafalgar Square to watch it on a huge TV screen. And they were filled with awe and amazement as they watched men walking on the face of the moon. Just before he re-entered the eagle, he made the enigmatic remark, good luck, Mr. Gorski. No one knew what he meant. There were no Russian cosmonauts by that name. And over the years, many people questioned Armstrong, but he always smiled and dodged the question. Then in 1995, while answering questions, a reporter brought up the 26-year-old question. This time, he finally responded. Mr. Gorski had died, so Armstrong felt he could answer the question. When he was a boy playing baseball with a friend in the back garden, his friend hit the ball, which landed in front of his neighbor's bedroom window. His, his neighbors were Mr. and Mrs. Gorski. As he leaned down to pick up the ball, young Armstrong heard Mrs. Gorski shouting at Mr. Gorski. Sex? You want sex? You'll get sex when the kid next door walks on the moon. <laughs> Another astronaut, James Irwin, said, Jesus walking on the earth is more important than man walking on the moon. And the interesting thing is, if you go through Luke's account, when the shepherds reported all that they had seen and heard of the angelic visitation, we're told that the people were filled with awe and amazement, just as the people in Trafalgar Square were filled with awe and amazement when they saw Neil Armstrong walking on the moon. Now, if you look at the account which has been read to us tonight, you'll find that the angel, the angels, when they announced the birth of the baby in Bethlehem, they announced it with these words. They said, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace, peace, to men on whom his favor rests. Now, there is a huge need in our society, in our world, for peace. We need peace among the nations. Iraq, Syria, the Yemen, Eritrea, South Sudan. We also need peace in our hearts 
and in our minds. They did a, a massive Gallup poll on Western Europe, and they came up with five main conclusions. Religious beliefs are declining. Morals have slumped. Honesty is on the wane. Happiness is increasingly difficult to find. And peace of mind is rare. Apparently, so the statistics tell me, seven out of ten families will have a blazing row over Christmas. And the number one subject will be money. 80%, the statistics tell me, of wives try to hide the true cost of Christmas from their husbands. And 10% of the husbands find out. Oh, that I might find peace. It's the cry of the human heart. Where can I find peace? Now, Jesus Christ came to bring peace. In another verse from the New Testament, Paul the Apostle, he wrote this. He said, therefore, since we've been put right through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And this simple verse tells us two very important things about peace. The first thing it tells us is that true peace is peace with God. You and I will never find true peace unless we have peace with God. And this is because we are made by God. God made us. He made you. He made me. He made us for himself. And if we don't have a relationship with God, we will never find true peace. So we need to know him. We need to experience him. And if we don't know him, and if we don't experience him, something is missing in our lives. And people describe this sense of something missing in lots of different ways. One woman, she said this, it was like a deep, deep void. Another one, a student, said this, I always seem to be searching for something, something definite, something you can rely on, something to be there always. Freddie Mercury, who was once the leader of the band called Queen, I read about him in a Cosmopolitan magazine. I don't usually read Cosmopolitan, but I was in The Dentist. And, um, and he said this. He was fantastically wealthy, Freddie Mercury. And he said, success and world idolization has prevented me from having the one thing we all need, a loving, ongoing relationship. And he went on in the article to describe how incredibly lonely he was. And the great tragedy is that there are so many people, and I meet them all the time, who are searching for life without God. They're searching for love, but often in the wrong places, and they're searching for freedom, but not finding it. And that is because there's a barrier between us and God. And the barrier is what the Bible calls sin. Now, one friend of mine, she used to visit in the hospitals in London, and somebody said to her once, 
you're talking about sin. What do you mean by sin? And she said, what's the middle letter? And that's what sin is. It's I. It's self-centeredness. And because of this barrier, this sin in our hearts, God often seems remote and irrelevant. So if we're going to find peace, true peace, we have to find peace with God. And the second thing that the verse tells us is that true peace is peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And the reason that peace with God comes through Jesus Christ, the reason Jesus Christ came into the world is because he is the great peacemaker. He's the great mediator. He came to bring peace between God and mankind. And to be our mediator, he had to be fully God, but he also had to be fully man. And all the evidence points to that. Now, I was trying to get this across to a a large congregation. It was many hundreds, actually, in a cathedral in Uganda. It was on the western tip of Uganda, a place called Kisoro. Some of you might have been there. And all the women were sitting on one side, and all the men were sitting on the other side. And I was speaking through an interpreter. And so I decided in the middle of my sermon to tell a story. Now, the story is partly true. It's not completely true, but it's partly true. And it concerned my wife and I. We used to live in the West End of London, just below the GPO Tower, if you know the GPO Tower, little street called Maple Street. We had a flat four floors up. And one day we had a huge row. That bit was true. And uh, in the middle of the row, the doorbell rang to our home. That was true. And a friend of ours, he'd been a friend of mine at university, was dropping in on the way up north. I opened the door, and my heart sank. Because you know, when you're having a row, the last thing you want to do is to have a visitor. So he came in, and he could tell that not everything was very good. I was in the kitchen, sulking. My wife was in the sitting room, crying. And he said to me, what's the problem, Roger? And I said, it's Ursula. And I said what she was doing. And then he went into the sitting room and he said, what's the problem, Ursula? And she said, it's Roger. He never puts the rubbish out on Tuesday night. So Richard came into the the kitchen. He said, now put the kettle on, make some tea. We went, he said, now I want you to sit next to Ursula and I want you to apologize for not putting the rubbish out. So through gritted teeth, I said, I'm very sorry, darling. No, I don't think I called her darling. I was too cross for that. I'm very sorry. I forgot to put the And then she turned to me and she said, I'm so sorry. I know you've got lots on your mind. It's okay. And then very deftly, our friend left, the two of us, and we kissed each other and made up. That was true. So I said to the interpreter afterwards, was that okay? He said, yes, it was fine, he said. But in Uganda, you would not be in the kitchen. 
So we need a mediator. We need someone to bring us together. Because we have done things that are wrong. We've all done things that are wrong. All of us have done things of which we feel ashamed. Now, God is holy. He loves us, but he sees our sin. And his character is like a coin with two sides, justice and love. His justice rightly condemns us, for sin must be punished. But his love makes him long for us to be his friends again. And on the cross, his justice and his love were perfectly satisfied. So Jesus Christ came to bring peace, true peace, peace with God. And the amazing thing is, once you find peace with God, you could begin to live at peace with yourself and you can begin to live at peace with others. So I I want to leave you with this question. Have you found that peace for yourself? Now the second group that visited Mary and Joseph and the baby, we're told, were a group of wise men. Matthew tells us this in his gospel. And uh, lots of legends have grown up around them. There's no reason to suppose that there were three of them or that they were kings or even that they had names. All Matthew tells us were, were that they were magi and, or wise men and that they came from the east. Tradition has it that they came from Persia or Iran, but they could have come from Arabia. And we're told that they followed a star and that the star guided them to Bethlehem and to Mary and Joseph and to, and to the baby. Some have suggested that the star was Halley's Comet, which was visible in 11 BC, but it was probably more likely a conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn, which happened three times in the year 7 BC, on May the 29th, October the 3rd, and December the 4th. And Matthew then tells us that these magi or wise men brought gifts to the baby, the gift of gold, which you traditionally gave to a king, the gift of frankincense, which you gave to a priest, and myrrh, which was what you gave to someone who was going to die. Now, I want to just for a couple of minutes concentrate on the gift of incense or frankincense. Frankincense or incense was used in the temple worship and at times of sacrifice. And it's still used in some Anglican churches today. I don't think it's used in this particular church. I was in a church recently in Bridlington on the coast of Yorkshire where the incense was so thick I could hardly see the people in the congregation. And the function of the priests, you gave frankincense or incense to a priest, the function of the priest was to speak to God on behalf of the people and to speak to the people on behalf of God. So in a very real sense, the priests symbolically were a bridge between God 
and the people. In fact, it's the same word uh, in the original for priest and for a bridge builder. And they symbolized a way in to the presence of God. If you like, they opened up the way into the presence of God. Now, Charles and I were ordained at about the same time in London, uh, in St. Paul's Cathedral, and I served my curacy in a church in the West End of London. It's next to the BBC. Some of you will know it. It's called All Souls Langham Place. And one of the jobs I was given as the new curate was to look after the visiting of the people in the parish. There were about 10,000 people who lived in the parish. It was a very interesting parish. It stretched from Tottenham Court Road, or Totty Court Road as we called it, through across towards Regent Street, and you went through the second-hand car dealers in Warren Street, lots of Indian restaurants, then the rag trade, Great Titchfield Street, and then into Regent Street, and then across Regent Street into the posh part of the parish, which was Harley Street and Wimpole Street, Devonshire Street. And we used to go out, about 30 of us, visiting every Wednesday night, knocking on doors, attempting to talk to the people in the parish, to make contact with them. And the most difficult place to visit was not actually where we lived, among the second-hand car dealers. They were usually pretty friendly. The most difficult place to visit was, interestingly enough, Harley Street and Wimpole Street. And so I used to go there with other people, where a little team of us would go there. And this particular, it was a, a wet, cold November evening. We'd been up and down Harley Street, ringing on doorbells, and little entry phones would speak. They were always very, very polite, incredibly polite. But they were always busy. Or actually, they were having a bath. I was amazed how many people had a bath on Wednesday night in Harley Street. It was obviously a very clean street on Wednesday night. So we'd been up and down, hadn't got in to any homes at all. I would ring the bell and the voice would speak out and they'd say, who is it? And I'd say, it was Roger Simpson. I'm a curate at the local church. And have you got a few minutes for a chat? That was the normal line that we had. Anyway, I, we'd been up and down. We were thoroughly depressed. And I said to the lady I was visiting with, we will try one more house. And if we don't get in there, we'll go back to the church. And we came out of Harley Street, if you know the area, and we came into a little street called Shandos Place. And it's still there. If you go down, it, there was a beautiful, beautiful Queen Anne house at the end. And I could see a lovely sitting room with uh, chandeliers and lovely curtains, a bit like some of the homes in Chester Square, actually. And it looked really lovely. It looked warm and inviting. And I was cold and wet and discouraged. So I said to my friend, we're going to try and get into that house. So uh, we went up, huge, great, big black door. It was massive. And I went up to ring the, the doorbell. And as I rang the doorbell, I noticed set in the doorbell was a little kind of like a television eye looking at me. So I guessed I was on a screen upstairs, so I smiled, rang the doorbell, and a man's voice said to me out of the answer phone, he, or entry phone, he said, who is it? So I said, it's, my name's Roger Simpson, I'm a 
curate uh, from the local parish church, and we're out visiting tonight. Have you got a few minutes for a chat? Now, I, I won't tell you exactly what he said, but the gist of it was no. <laughs> so we left, and we went back to the church, a little bit discouraged, and the others came back. The ones who'd been with the second-hand car dealers had a great time. We struggled. The next day was Thursday, and on a Thursday, I used to speak at a lunchtime service every Thursday lunchtime in a church called St. Peter's Via Street, which was next to D.H. Evans. We used to get about 70 or 80 people to it, and at the end of the service, two of the ladies were going out of the service, and one of them said to me, Roger, did you know that Jean, who was the other one, has just lost her mother, and she would love it if you could visit her? And I said, Give me her address, and I'll visit her this afternoon. So she wrote her address down on an envelope, and I got onto my, 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 my motorbike, and I headed off that afternoon to visit her. Now, you can imagine my surprise when I pulled up in front of the house in Shandos Place. Huge, great, big black door, bolted shut again. So I went up, and I rang the uh, little bell with a little bit more confidence this time, and the same man said to me, who is it? So I said, uh, my name's Roger Simpson. I'm the curate of the local parish church. And then I said, I've come to visit Jean. And there was a silence. And then he said, come in. And he pressed the buzzer and this great big black door opened and I was in. And it was beautiful. It was absolute. And it wasn't actually a home I discovered it was the headquarters of a multinational company, and Jean worked for, she was the PA to the director. And uh, I had a little talk to her, and I prayed with her, and then she said to me, would you like to see around the house? I said, yes. I said, I'd love to see the room upstairs. So she took me upstairs, and I did something slightly unusual. I took my cowboy boots off, and I said, do you mind if I stretch out on the sofa? And she said, no, it's Okay. She was a bit surprised, and I did. And then she said, well, why did, why did you do that, Roger? And I said, I told her how I'd longed to get in the night before, and it was all barred and shut, and I couldn't get in. And it occurred to me, as I thought about it, that for a lot of people, actually, God seems like that. He seems a long way away. He seems very remote and actually, to be honest, rather irrelevant to today. I was like that. I felt like that. That was my life for a long time. I'll tell you something. When people meet a clergyman, they think that you come from a great long line of clergymen. I do not. My father was a pilot. He was an RAF pilot. Then he was a test pilot. And then he ended up as an airline pilot. I had no faith. I had no understanding of Christianity. I would go to chapel at school, but it absolutely meant nothing to me. And then by an extraordinary providence of God, I have a twin brother who was then getting into the drug culture big time. This was in the late 60s and early 70s. I met some Christians. Re these were real Christians who had a relationship with God 
through Jesus Christ. And they talked to me, they got to know me, and I began to learn and listen, and I was very intrigued by Jesus Christ. But I was tugged in all sorts of different directions. And then the whole thing came to a head one evening for me. I arrived in London. I was at London University doing anthropology. My twin brother was doing Burmese and Sanskrit. And I was advised to go to a church very similar to this church, actually in the West End of London. And I'd been thinking and trying to find this Jesus Christ. And I was sitting upstairs in the balcony, except it was over there. And I was listening, and the vicar preached a sermon about Jesus Christ and how you could know and experience Jesus Christ. And then he said at the end, he said, I'm going to give you an opportunity to come to Jesus Christ. As John said in the reading that we had, to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And I sat up in the balcony and my heart was thudding away because I knew, I knew this was true, but I was frightened. I was scared of giving over my life to someone else because I'm not a very consistent person. And I didn't think that I could keep it up. I thought I'd let God down too much. And then he said, he said, to come to Jesus Christ, you've got to be willing to say three things. You've got to be willing to say sorry to him. Now, I could do that. I could say sorry. There were many things that I'd done that were wrong. I knew I was in the wrong But I had to also be willing to turn my back with his help on the things that were wrong. Now, that was going to be more difficult. But I could do that with his help. Now, I want to ask you, are you able to do that? Are you able to say sorry to Jesus Christ and mean it from your heart? And then the second thing he said that that I needed to pray was I needed to Thank Jesus Christ for dying for me on the cross. Now, I didn't really understand that very fully. I still don't really understand it. I understand it a lot more than I did then. Could I do that? And I thought, yes, I can do that. I can thank him that he died there for me. And then the third thing he said I needed to say was please. I had to be willing to actually choose to ask Christ to be my Lord, my master, my king. And then he said, and this was what really hit me, he said, I'm going to give you a chance to do this. And he said, and after the service, everybody will be filing out of the church. There were about a thousand people in the church. And he said, I'd like to meet you at the end, and I'm going to stand at the front. And he said, you'll have to push your way against the stream. And then he added, and I've never forgotten this, even though it was a long time ago now. He said, but you might as well learn that now, because it'll be like that for the rest of your life. Boy, that was true. 
And I did. That night, along with a few others, I pushed my way against the stream and I said to that wonderful vicar, I said, I've done that tonight, but I'm going to need a lot of help. And I'm still here, 40 odd years later, and I still believe this stuff. In fact, I believe it even more. Now, you might not be ready to do that tonight, you, but you're interested. Maybe you've come here with a friend. I encourage you strongly to explore this, because if this stuff is true, you need to get to the bottom of it. And there's going to be this series called Big Questions here at St. Michael's, and they're going to be looking at subjects like, is Christianity intellectually credible? Well, now that might be your question. Well, you can come to that. It's going to be on uh, in January. And there are other ones. How can a good God allow suffering? So why not come to some of these? There'll be a, a short talk, and then it's over to you. You can ask any question you'd like. But you might be somebody tonight, and you're thinking, this is true. This is true. God is speaking to me. And I want to encourage you to do something tonight. Now, I'm not actually going to ask you to do what I did. But I am going to ask you at the end, I'll be standing on the door. I've got a little booklet here called Why Christmas. I'm going to ask you to come and say to me on the door as you leave. I'd like one of those. And this explains just in more detail and much more clearly than I'd been able to do tonight how you can have this relationship with Jesus Christ. It was the best decision I have ever made. And Jesus Christ has totally transformed my life. And he can do the same for you.